You're listening to Tech Talks, the TV industry podcast from Broadcast Tech Magazine. My name is Jake Bickerton and I'm the editor of Broadcast Sport and Broadcast Tech Magazines. My guest on the podcast today is Ingrid Silver, partner at global law firm Reed Smith. She talks in detail about the safe return of sport and the legal and financial implications of the pandemic on sports broadcasting. Hi Ingrid, how are you? Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you? Yes, all right. Not too bad. Bearing up. First of all, kick off with a, a nice broad question for you, which is, will sports production and broadcast bounce back from a pandemic? What I think we're going to see is a gradual return and possibly a few false starts along the way, depending on whether we see some, some spikes in um, cases and so on. Mm. And I also think there's going to be a huge amount of variation across different sports. So I don't think there's going to be sort of one size fits all in terms of production, logistics and, and how you manage things. Uh, a lot will depend on whether you're dealing with a team sport or an individual participant, because obviously with teams, there's much greater challenges. And equally around production, you know, how do you, how do you film a football match versus, I don't know, the Tour de France or a skiing competition? I think another factor to bear in mind as sports return is, is the role of spectators. I think there's going to be some amazing learnings out of that and what can be done with AI. I guess as with everything to do with this pandemic and the way we interact with each other and the way we work and carry out our lives, when something is new and different, initially you sort of have a you know the natural tendency is to reject it mm. and then actually you you end up embracing it and a lot of people are saying now that a lot of things have come out of this that they prefer so there's been a lot of guidance from governments government around um, return to play in different stages starting off with training in a distance way right and then moving through different stages to sort of a full match as we saw last night it's interesting because it, it gives you a framework but Equally, it's not prescriptive, so you have to sort of figure it out for yourself. But two interesting features of that guidance is one, clubs and sports organisations and so on have to appoint medical officers, and they also have to appoint a COVID officer. All right who's not necessarily medically trained, but who's responsible for overseeing things. We've also seen guidance from World Rugby, which also suggests, well, actually recommends the appointment of a sort of COVID officer or manager who's either medically trained or has access to clinical advice. So what we're starting to see evolve is that there will have to be some sort of accountability and responsibility Mm. on the part of organizations Mm. we can also see that the guidance is evolving quite rapidly so we don't really know where we're going to land in all of this but i think it's fair to say we will end up with a framework to allow sports to return could Mm. we be looking 12 months down the line from now and everything's back to normal again or do you actually think there'll be longer term changes being made in the sporting arena in terms of the long term and whether we can expect a return to normal a, a, a lot of that is going to depend on how um, spectators feel about mm. things mm. so even if measures are in place to manage risk such as tracing etc if spectators don't have the confidence to return to a live match or environment then it's really not going to make a difference so mm. I think 
it's going to be sensible to have a sort of dual strategy around focusing on enhancing the broadcast experience, the interactive experience, the online experience, and investing in that. And even if we do see a complete return to so-called pre-pandemic normality, those sorts of experience has, experiences have the potential to open brand new revenue streams, experiences, reach new audiences, mm. Mm. certainly if you think about sport on a global basis. So I, I don't think there's any loss in dismissing those sort of strategies. And actually, there's a massive opportunity. I want to sort of talk a little bit about who kind of owes who what. Apparently, Sky Sports has come to an agreement with the Premier League as to how much they would need to get to mitigate against some of the losses that they've had to um, go through during lockdown, you know, offering subscribers their money back and or put a pause on their subscription, that kind of stuff. From my point of view of broadcasters keeping fans happy and federations keeping broadcasters happy and the legal side of all that, yeah, what, yeah. Yeah, what's going How on? How do you want to pick that? Yeah. yeah. I don't need to tell you, it's unbelievably complex. Yes. There's so many moving parts and it's a very complex ecosystem. But there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution here. But if you try and sort of unpick what's going on, mm. the first thing to take into consideration is that this is all governed by contractual relationships between all the different parties right through the value chain. Mm. And those contracts will each contain quite specific provisions dealing okay. with what has happened. Um, I don't think any lawyer has ever spelt, spent so much time dealing with force majeure clauses as the profession has <laughs> over the past um, three or four months. So it, it does require an analysis of what contracts say about uh, force majeure events and what the consequences are for each particular contract in terms of mm. rights to terminate, rights to amend, financial consequences, etc. You also need to take into account that the law that sits in the background to all of this. So what happens if a contract doesn't have a false majeure clause or that false majeure clause doesn't cover the scenario we're dealing with. Right. Uh, so the doctrine of frustration is something that many of us are dealing with for the first time since law school uh, <laughs> and fast becoming experts in. That's a thing, uh, is it? And that is a thing. Right, so okay. the doctrine of frustration is comes into play when you can't actually perform the contract because of surrounding circumstances. Right. Uh, and there's also a lot of law around consumer protection, you know, coming back to subscribers and things like that. The other important factor to take into consideration when you're trying to figure out what's happening with the money is insurance. Yeah. And whether you actually have insurance coverage for what's happening and who funds insurance and all that sort of thing. Um, so as I said, lots of moving parts in terms of the legalities of it. And then you also have the commercial reality. So even if the contract says, you know, one party can walk away or receive a certain payment or whatever, if that ends a relationship so you have nothing or has the effect of sending the other party bust or whatever the consequences mm. are, that's not really going to help anyone. So, you know, as you say, there was this agreement reached between Sky and um, Premier League and so on. So commercial reality is really going to be what determines a lot of outcomes here. Right. Once people have established what the actual position is in contract wow. and at law and so on. So do you think some of the rights deals 
that will come up over the next year or so for sports federations and broadcasters will probably adapt in terms of the time scale that they may have covered before and what they might cover now? My personal view is that things are going to change a lot in that, you know, sports rights contracts have been fairly formulaic mm-hmm. over a long period of time of time. And the moving parts have been around the advent of new distribution yeah. platforms and, you know, how you slice and dice the rights. But now we're dealing with a whole new layer of uncertainty around whether you can actually, you know, deliver the rights. Mm. And, um, so I think there's going to be a lot more flexibility and contingency coming into play in these contracts. So we're going to, as lawyers, we're going to have to think a lot harder and draft a lot smarter, but we're also going to have to tailor commercial outcomes to particular scenarios. So, right. you know, what happens if a key player can't play because they're diagnosed? What happens if a team is taken out or, mm. You know, what happens if there's a full lockdown? Mm. All those different scenarios will need planning around. But I think what's also going to happen, which will be quite interesting, is people are going to think a lot harder about other things that could go wrong. Mm. So we're very focused on pandemic-related things at the moment, but we're now all doubling down on our force majeure causes and trying to think about other things that could go wrong. So for example, you know, we've just seen curfews around the world in relation to Black Black Lives Matter Mm. uh, riots. So, you know, political unrest, Mm, that sort of thing. How does that affect contractual performance? You know, what happens if there's a cyber attack? Now, having lived through this pandemic experience, it will focus people's minds on the realities of what a crisis can mean. Yeah. Um, and related to that, people are going to think a lot harder about the sorts of risks they can insure for. Interestingly, after the SARS epidemic, a lot of insurance policies did cover the pandemic scenario. Hmm. Then there are all sorts of nuances around whether or not you require a government order. As you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, hmm. the government was really tiptoeing around issuing that order and instead advising and guiding and recommending people to stay away which was very unhelpful i hope you enjoyed this episode of broadcast tech tours podcasts subscribe now and i'll see you next time